We a little bit more awake now, Brother Larry? Amen. If I remember correctly last week, I don't know if it was you or somebody said it, we're not a rich church. We aren't, financially. We're making it. We're doing all right. We're not like these big mega churches, three, four hundred people. We aren't on TV. We aren't on the radio. I'm here to tell you, we're rich. Amen. I've been the recipient of this richness. I've been the recipient of what this church has done for me. So anybody that says, want to put their nose up in the air and say, oh, you just go to that little bitty church over there. <coughs> tell them, come on in. Amen. Take a look at this little bitty church. Amen. You'll find something might not find in that great big mega church. Amen. Amen. We've all got love to share. We feel it each and every Sunday. If we weren't doing Amen. Amen, Tiffany. God's work and following God's word, you wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have Satan on our back. Amen. Satan doesn't like that. No, we don't. So, frankly, he will be one day soon but we got work to do as brother Larry has said let us open up in prayer Abba Father, Lord Jesus I thank you for this day I thank you for all that are gathered here Lord I pray, I know we have some that are, that are traveling and things of that nature Lord we pray your blessing, traveling mercies be upon them I pray you allow me to get out of your way Lord God that your, your words come out of my mouth and not my own I pray you open the eyes and the ears and the hearts of everyone here, Lord. The word you have to speak to us today speaks to all of us, not just to those who haven't known you or to those that have, but to every one of us, Lord God. I pray you convict our hearts, Lord. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to have you open to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 12 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. You will also have it up on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bibles with you today. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So reading the word, you may be seated. It's, this is a fun, fun time in the book of Revelation. We now get to ch- turn our attention to the, the middle churches, if you will. We are now on that, that third church. We've gone over... And I, I want us to, to always, when we're d- discussing the seven churches, to keep that imagery of chapter 1 alive, that, that image of Jesus Christ with, with the hair that's white like wool, with, with uh, 
eyes that look like they're on fire, bronze skin, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is not a normal depiction of a human being, is it? No, No, it's very purposeful. The way Christ revealed himself to John is very purposeful. To To the church in Ephesus, he reminded him that he is the one who holds the seven stars and walks before the seven lampstands. He is watching over his church always. To the church in Smyrna, he reminds them, I am the one who died and is alive forevermore. And to the church in Pergamum, he reminds them, I am the one with the two-edged sword. Understand clearly that that reference to this sword is the very word of God. Christ is saying, I speak the word of God. Understand clearly what a sword coming out of a mouth means. It means judgment. There's no other way to sugarcoat this. Pergamum is in trouble. You want to know the, the reality that, that this church, in the next two weeks, the two churches we'll look at, it's a, a dangerous slope they've gone down. Pergamum is the church where they've just started to slip a little bit. And we'll get into that today. And then the next week, we'll look at a church after it has slipped. What is the consequence when they fall into that pit? And then the third one is the rewards that, that they get for going down that. Church number five, Jesus tells them they are dead. Do you want to be a dead church? This is the warning you need to hear. It's not just for the church, it's for your walk. There is a danger. Over and over again, Jesus addresses the churches, and he addresses them to individual people, but he also addresses them to all those who hear. Let the churches who hear understand this. To the one, those are individuals, who overcome, I will give you this stone. We'll talk about what that stone means. It is a a beautiful reference. But understand that that Jesus is not going to sugarcoat any words here. Jesus is not going to tell you, it's okay, you got last place, it's all right. No, that's not what's going to happen here. Jesus is going to tell him what the Word of God says, for he himself is the Word of God. And if you fall away from, from Christ, if you do the things that Christ wants you to do, he tells you exactly what's going to happen. The church will die. Now his bride will never die. He is coming for his bride one day very soon. But if we do not heed the warnings that are given to the churches, we can go down that same path. But there is good news. As we saw last week, not every church gets a rebuke. This one gets multiple. So let us examine our hearts as we go on. With Pergamum, I want you to imagine the the city where you live in. How would you describe your city? I know many of us live in Aurora, Montgomery, Oswego, I know somewhere as far out as Sandwich and other places. How would you describe your city? The slogan for the city of Aurora is the city of lights. I kind of laugh at that statement. Hey, I know where it comes from. It was one of the very first cities in the country to, to have electrical lights. Back, back in its day, I'm sure it was grand and glorious and a wonder to see. But as we talk about in church the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the city of Aurora is lacking greatly. It, it needs the real light. It needs Jesus Christ. How would we describe it? This is how Jesus describes Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How would you like that to be described to your hometown? wouldn't make you real excited, would it? It shows you what the church is going through, what, what the temptations that they would, they would be facing. With Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, all, all kind of had this, this rivalry going around. Like Aurora has a rivalry with Rockford over who is the second largest city in Illinois. I think it's quite a silly thing. 
Chicago's number one. It's kind of like, who, who gets to finish runner-up? It's like losing the Super Bowl. It's, why would you want to do that? I don't know. But that, that's what we do. We, we fight with Rockford, who has, who has the most citizens. But in Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, they all fought over who is the most loyal religiously to Rome. Eph- Ephesus was the richest town. It was, was on the bank of the sea. Smyrna had, was so loyal to the, the pagan Romans that, that they had both Romans and Jews persecuting the Christians. It's partly what Christ meant last week when we looked at the synagogue of Satan. But here we are, the place where they say, say that Satan's throne actually dwells. And what this means is, this is the city that first set up worship to Caesar. Caesar Augustus was first worshipped in Pergamum. That is what's going on here. And so, over and over again, the people are faced. The, the reality of a Christian, they go into a town, they set up a church, and they say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the only God. All of a sudden, very quickly, they make some enemies. They say, what do you mean Jesus is the only God? Did not Caesar put him to death? How could you say this man is God? Our Caesar is God, is he not? This is the conflict that the, that the people in Pergamum would have been dealing with. The church here would have seen true satanic worship. Worship of a man who mocks God declaring himself to be God. Understand that that the Roman culture was full of idolatry. And to worship in a a Roman setting meant to partake in a sexual orgy as part of your worship. Something that that God would, would view as utter blasphemy. He has created us to have relationship, to have intimacy with each other. It is a great, great view Marriage is a great view on how God has designed human beings to be in relationship with Him. As Christ is, is the groom, we are the bride. We see that imagery all the time. But in Rome, what they did, they, they took that imagery and they destroyed it. And they said, we'll worship God in a sexual manner, in true lust. It was horrifying. And so the, this, this condemnation that that, that comes upon here is the reality is that the Christians were told, well, you, you can be a people who stand up for the faith of Christ, who do the things that Christ has told you to do and refuse to do the things the pagans have told you to do. The pagans didn't mind that they worship Christ. They just wanted them to worship the Roman gods as well. They wanted them to partake in the Roman festivities. But the reality here, and we often talk about this, is they, they, we read about this man named Antipas. Outside of this verse, we don't know much about him other than he died for his faith. He, he, he held true. He said, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he was willing to be put to death for it. Who here is willing to be put for death for Christ? We often talk about it. Well, what, what would that mean? I'd like to, to read to you here what it really means. When we talk about are we willing to deny the faith, this is what we're talking about. To deny the faith in the face of death would be to declare that the one believes life in the here and now is better than Jesus, better than the having the life he promises, which cannot be defeated by death. When, when the, the Romans were threatening the Christians with death, they were given a choice. Stay alive, live like you want in, in the Roman culture, or be put to death. 
Say that Jesus is worth it. That the life that Jesus has offered us, that eternal life, that salvation, that glory that is to come, that kingdom that He will establish, that is the life that we live for. Or is the life here and now more important? Is having the comforts of a home and a house and food to put on the table for our families more important? Or do you think we could compromise a little bit and have a little bit of both? Say, we believe in Jesus but we also believe in all this stuff the world teaches. This is the problem that the church is facing in Pergamum. They, they, are, they are being squeezed by the outside world saying, you just have to compromise just a little bit and we'll let you live. We'll let you worship the gods you want to worship. It's always been a temptation throughout the history of the church and God's people always. When the Hebrew people are slaves in Egypt and they say to Pharaoh, let us go so we can worship our God in the desert. He says, fine. Go worship your God and come back and be slaves and worship our gods as well. They said, no, we can't do that. It's a command that God has given us to worship Him and Him alone. For there are no other gods. And this you and I know is true. There is but one God. No man could be like Caesar tried to be. Say, I've been a great ruler all these years. I am now God. You can't become God. You're either God or you're not. It's not, not something you achieve. It's not a promotion you get at work. There's, there's nothing you can do to become God. And so when, when the Christians are confronted with this man who claims to be God and demands worship, he demands that you pay homage to him, that you bow the knee at his statue. You know what Caesar claimed? That when you bowed the knee at any of his statues, his very presence was there, and you were worshiping his presence. How ridiculous that sounds. You're bending your knee before a statue made by man's hands, carved and imagined in the image of man. We cannot bow before a statue because a statue did not make us. A statue does not offer us salvation. We must realize that that, that idolatry of worshiping a statue, where does it come from? It's, it's our trust. Where do we put our trust? Did they put their trust in the Roman culture? And, well, I'll be okay as long as I do what Rome wants me to do. I'll be okay. I'll be able to provide for my family. We saw, we saw last week in Smyrna, they were, they were literally a church in poverty. Our church truly is rich because we have a love of Christ and the love of our brothers and sisters. Financially, the world will look at our church and think we don't have so much. I tell you, we, we are rich beyond compare compared to the, the church in Smyrna. The church in Pergamum was, was not a church that we were told was having a hard financial time, but they were definitely having a spiritual crisis. And they, 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 at their feet is laid by Christ an accusation that you have gone the way of Balaam. Who knows who Balaam is? Balaam is a prophet in the Old Testament, Numbers 22 through 25. I encourage you to read it later. But basically what happens is the, the, the king Balak of Moab, he comes to Balaam. He knows Balaam is a prophet for hire that belongs to the, the Israelites. Balaam was not what I would call a godly man. He had been given the, the gift of prophecy. And he would proclaim God's word and he would never go against God's word, but he would surely try to profit off God's word. He, he would say, well, if you give me some money, I'll, I'll do what you ask. So Balaam comes to him and he says, I want you to curse God's people, look at their tents. They're so numerous, they're going to come and overtake me. They're going to do to us what they did to the Egyptians. They're going to come into the land and take us over. 
Who are we to stand up to, to, to God's people? And Balaam tries three different times, but each time the word of God that came to Balaam said, you will not bless, you will not curse those who I have blessed. You can't do it. And Balaam said this to, to Balak, I can't do it. God won't allow me to, to speak a curse what he has blessed over and over again. And so Balak sends his people and he finally encourages him. And this is the part you probably know from your Sunday school lessons at some point in time. Balaam travels with uh, Balak's men and he's riding his donkey. And throughout the journey, the donkey stops three different times. First time that the donkey goes into the field. And quickly, Balaam's like, what is wrong with my donkey? Why is he acting this way? And he, he smacks him and he gets back on the road. L- later on, the, the donkey moves off to the side and smashes Balaam's foot against the wall. And he strikes the donkey again. Then a third time, the donkey's going along and he's, he's between two ravines with high cliffs. And there's just enough for, for the donkey to pass. He can't go left or right. And the donkey stops and he lays down flat. And Balaam gets off his donkey and smacks him with his rod. And he says, if I only had a sword, I would strike you down dead. And then one of the funniest things in all of scripture happens. The donkey starts to talk. <laughs> the donkey says, have I not been faithful to you all your life? Wherever you have told me to go, I have carried you. Now why do you treat me this way? And what happens? Balaam's eyes are open to what's in front of him. What does Balaam see? He sees an angel of the Lord with a sword about to strike Balaam dead for dare defying God and his people. That donkey saved his life three times. And for the donkey's sake, that wretched prophet Balaam is not dead. And what does Balaam do? The warning that Christ gives to this church that Balaam would do? Balaam goes to the people and he tells Balaam, I cannot curse this people but I can show you how to get them cursed. He goes to the people and it says, it's okay for you to practice sexual immorality. God will not judge you for it. It's okay to bow down before the idols of the land and take in other gods before you. God will not judge you before it as long as you acknowledge Him. Does that sound like compromise just a little bit to you? This is the warning that is given to the church in Pergamum. It's the warning I give to this church and every church in this country. You compromise and you are going the way of Balaam. Some of us gather here and we have churches across this land who say they're uh, welcoming churches or affirming churches. What that is called for is we are a church of Balaam. We, we say we, we believe the Bible and we believe the Holy Scriptures, but we're also going to say it's okay to sin. That grace will abound forever. That It doesn't matter if you sin because Christ died for you on the cross. So your sin could go on and on forever. Go on sinning. The grace, grace is there. This is the warning that is given. We have con- churches in this country right now that will tell you homosexuality is okay. That it is proved by God. That marriage is between a man and a man is okay. That God doesn't mind it. One of the most historic Baptist churches in this country in Washington, an American Baptist church, two weeks ago hired a, a pastor and her wife as their pastors. I can't, I can't go in and and tell you all the scriptures that this goes against. But they say it's okay. And why is it okay? Because they have compromised. Because they want their church attendance to be large. They don't want people to say, oh, you're too judgmental. Well, guess what? There is one who is about to lay out the sword. Who is about to lay the sword to Pergamum. Because they are starting to compromise. 
Where, where will we be? Will we stand up and say, we will not compromise? For we know what God's word says. We would rather be few and true disciples than to have hundreds or even thousands here just because we make people feel good. We, we tell them it's okay. God won't be mad. God will be furious. Amen. This, this word he gives to the churches in Pergamum. <coughs> he warns them about Balaam. He sent his angel with the sword to strike Balaam down. He's not sending an angel this time. He's showing up himself. It's like this. The church in Pergamum were, were believers. They believed in Jesus Christ. But the big bad Rome came. And they saw the size and the power of Rome. They started backing down. Saying, whoa, okay, I'll, I'll back up. I, I'm going to compromise. I don't want to be killed. They turn around. The church doesn't realize it, but Jesus Christ is standing right behind them with the sword of truth. The double-edged sword that cuts through bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Why would we fear this sword? All it can do is kill the body. This sword will send you straight to hell. Which sword are you going to fear? We are in a battle between two swords, but the solution is really simple. We step back and get out of the way and stand behind Jesus Christ. Not behind Rome. I guarantee you he can take Rome down with one strike. Secret is Rome's sword isn't even sharp. <laughs> Thank you, brothers. <laughs> of course, the, the sword is, is a, a bit of analogy here. The sword is the word of God. You want to read about the sword? Just open your Bible. It's in there. It, it, it is sharp and it cuts straight to the heart. It should cut straight to our heart. We could go on and, and tell everybody how great Jesus is. But Jesus sees our heart. He sees our church. He knows what we're about. He knows if we are living for Him, if we are starting to compromise. <coughs> compromise will always lead to death. We see it over and over again. You know what compromise with Rome would lead to? It would lead to those sexual orgies. It would lead to the sacrificing of their children. Think about this. You think Rome's just going to make you sacrifice and one, one time your beliefs? No, they're going to keep pushing and they're going keep, keep pushing. And there was one point in this time in this country where everybody would be proud to be a Christian. They'd go to school and they'd recite the pledge. One nation under God. You can't recite the pledge in school. Most schools won't even let you bring a Bible. You say the name Jesus and you'll get suspended, possibly expelled. What have we done? We've, we've caved. And they keep marching us back and back to the point where we're going to have to answer to that sort of truth. Are we going to stand up and be a people that is for Jesus Christ? Or are we, we going to be cowering down and, and, and fighting in the middle just try, trying to keep both at bay? When the sword of Christ strikes, it will be swift. It is so sharp it will cut you in half. It will cut you down. That sword may kill the, kill the body, cannot kill the soul. The great heresy throughout the history of the church has always been the same. This is not a new new thing. They, they face this in Pergamum. The Old Testament saints face this. We, we face this. The reality is compromise always will lead you to deny Christ. 
You may say, well, well, I have Christ. I'm just going to live how I want to live. But we could open up the word of truth, the double-edged sword. What does it say? Liars, thieves, the sexually immoral, homosexuals, murderers. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So you've got to reconcile that. Jesus Christ has died for our sins. But he didn't die so you could be the most sinful man or woman in the history of the world. He died so you would repent. Well, what has happened is if you come forward and you say you believe in Jesus Christ and you have made Him the Lord of your life, you no longer go and sin because you have repented. You have turned away from that old life. (coughs) But too many of us, it's just words. It's words to get somebody off our back or words to make us feel comfortable. A day will soon come where the groom comes for his bride and takes her home. And then who's going to be here next Sunday? Those who really don't know Him. That is the reality. Is that there are many in the church who don't really know Him. They don't know Him because they're too occupied looking at the Roman sword. Or looking at the sword of America. Wondering how they're going to survive. I know there are churches that are worried about taxes coming. What if they tax the church? The church doesn't depend on man's money. The church depends on the Holy Spirit. The church will always be around until she is called home. We have the choice today to be part of that. (coughs) Another point I point out to you, something I don't think people understand nearly enough, that Jesus Christ cares immensely about his reputation. When you as, as a Christian go around, you are saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. Put it more accurately what the scripture says. You have become a slave to Jesus Christ. You are a representative of Christ here on earth. So when we go forward and when we fall into sin, when we look, we look at a woman to lust after her, what are we doing? We are sinning with Christ's eyes. Or we commit sins of the flesh. We are sinning with the flesh that, that, that Christ has saved. Think about what you do. You are representing Jesus Christ all day long. Some of you will do very sinful things this week and claim to be Christ, belong to Christ. There's something wrong with that picture. Christ has called us to repent. He has called us to be the light. He has called us to forsake our life. Those who want to save their lives will die. Those who are willing to give it up will live. This is what Christ has said. This is what he says to the church, to our church. But he reminds the church that they don't have to go the way of the prophet Balaam. They don't have to be like the Nicolaitans who put up divisions in the church and who who put up hierarchies, who put politics and and things into the church. They said, you know what? We're going to have an archbishop, a bishop, a pastor, a deacon, an elder, a trustee, you know, all, all those things. In reality, we have some of those positions, but not one of us is above the other. In reality, the pastor is the lowest position in the church. Christ told us, if you want to be the greatest, you must become the least. You must serve. The role of the pastor is to serve the congregation. The role of the deacons is to serve the congregation. See, the, the world of the church is reverse. In the world, everybody wants to become the president and have all the power. In the church, we're not to be about power. We're about to be about service because the power belongs to one. And that is Christ our King. But he, but he offers us something truly great. 
And I, I, I want to, for you to understand what, what these promises are. When, when we look at what he's, he's given us, he's given us an opportunity to repent. Understand what that means. That means to turn away from the sins of our life. In just a moment, we'll have an altar call. But today, I want to expand it, not just for those who need to make Jesus the Lord of their life, but for all those where there may be sin in your life and you need to repent of it. Because the, the two things that Jesus specifically dresses here are idolatry and sexual immorality that are going on in the church. What is idolatry? It is the, it is the worship, the, the putting your trust in something that is not God. And what is that? He, at its core, it's this thing that says, I need to have my needs met. And I don't trust God to do that. So I'm going to trust this other thing to do that. Or I'm going to trust myself and my own abilities. God through Jesus Christ, offers you the hidden manna. You know from, from the Old Testament, the, the manna is what was given to the, to the Hebrew nation as they were leaving Egypt, coming out of the bonds of slavery. They didn't have time to pack up and, and prepare six months' worth of food. They sure didn't have time to prepare 40 years. So they had to trust God for that manna, for the, the, the everyday bread that would sustain them, for their basic needs. Christ offers the, the true manna, which is Jesus Christ himself. He says, I will give you the hidden manna, the manna that they did not realize. He is the true bread of life. He offers himself to you. He says, trust in me, and I will provide for you. I will meet all your needs. The second thing, and we find this uh, quite interesting, is he says, I will give you a white stone, and on it there will be a new name that only you know. What is going on here? Part, part of that sexual immorality, that, that pagan worship that was going on, is they were giving themselves to others in worship. And at the reality, God has created marriage. God has, has created the, the beauty of sex and everything that goes along with it. But his purpose in it is intimacy. The purpose of it is to, for us uh, as a husband and wife to join together and be intimate with each other. There are things that you will know about your spouse that no one else will know. And what does he offer to you? He offers to, to be your groom, for you to be his bride, and he will give you a new name, a name that you and he alone knows. That is what he's offering, true intimacy. Saying you don't have to sell yourself to anyone. You don't have to give of yourself to, to worship like that. He says, you belong to me. I care about you. I will know you intimately. And he desires to know us all intimately. A day will come, and this may be hard for some of us to believe, but a day will come where the great preachers we think of, you know, the, the Charles Spurgeon, the John Piper, and the John Knox, and, and, and those guys, we, we look back and, and think of, of them as the great preachers. When you get to heaven and ask where they are, nobody will even know the name. Because they are given a new name. A name by Jesus Christ. And it's going to be beautiful and a wonderful thing to see. You will be given a new name if you profess Christ. Christ knows you, and he wants you to have that intimate relationship with him. But he will not compromise. He will not allow his, his bride to be defamed. He will not allow anyone to, to walk both ways. You could either be all in with Jesus Christ, following him, or you could be all in with the world. If you think you could straddle the fence and be in both worlds, you're really just in the world just trying to put on a facade, putting on that, that fake, fake mask and telling everyone, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm going to heaven. 
You'll be surprised. A day will come when Christ returns and you won't be in heaven at all. You'll be in hell. You'll be hellfire. You'll be torment. You'll long to, to be able to change the things in your life, but you won't be able to. Because now is the time. Not after you have died. Not after you have caved into the sword of the world. But Christ stands with that sword ready to strike. A day will soon be coming where the Father tells His Son to get on that white horse and bring the judgment, bring the wrath, bring the fury, bring everything to this earth that this earth deserves. Now, the good news for us, church, is that those that are in the body, those that are truly part of the bride, will be with Christ already. We'll be riding right behind him with our own swords. And it'll surely be a lot sharper than that one. The, word, the world fears the word of God because it speaks truth. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. There's no way around it. You could sugarcoat it and try to justify it all day long. Christ is not going to hear your justifications. He's going to tell you, I went to that cross for you and you weren't willing to accept me. So now not only do you have to pay for, for your own sins, but you have the sin of blasphemy of denying the only Son of God upon you. I do not wish that for anyone here. The church in Pergamum, they have been given this warning. They have been given this one opportunity to repent. As I said before, I'm going to close in prayer now. But if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, come and bend the knee now while you have the time. And if there is anyone here who is backslidden, has, has fallen into sin, come and bend the knee and repent towards God. Don't be afraid of what other people will see and, and think about you because what they think about you does not really matter. What Jesus Christ thinks about you matters. We don't bow before the sword of anyone but Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Abba Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the many blessings you give us, Lord God. I pray as, as we ponder these things in our hearts, Lord, that we'd bend the knee, that we'd repent of our sins. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, and go before us. Guide us in what you would have us do with our lives, Lord. May we never compromise. May we always stand up for your truth. Lord, we, we know what happens when we compromise, how it taints our soul. You have, you have made us a beautiful bride in a white gown, Lord, and, and too often we go and muddy it up again. Lord, let us come to you one more time. Wash us clean with your word. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen.